Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song in his praise in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. All right, our sermon today, after I get done scratching my eye, is going to be um, Exodus 28, 31 through 43. This is entitled, Clothed in Majesty and Righteousness. Now i got to do my other eye. Okay, there we go. Sorry about that. Uh, Exodus 28, 31 through 43. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. There shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around its opening, like the opening in a coat of mail, so that it does not tear. And upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet all around its hem, and bells of gold between them all around, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, upon the hem of the robe all around. And it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers, and its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, that he may not die." You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put on it a blue cord that it may be on the turban. It shall be on the front of the turban. So shall it be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in the, all their holy gifts, and that it shall always be on his forehead that they may be acceptable before the Lord." You shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread. You shall make the turban of fine linen, and you shall make the sash of woven work. For Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, and you shall make hats for them for glory and beauty. You shall So you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place that they do not incur iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and to his descendants after him. Anybody see a lot of pictures of Christ in there? You will. On Tuesday morning, which is about 10 weeks ago now, while at my morning job, and thinking about the completion of this sermon, I was pondering how people get duped into things concerning bad doctrine. The Hebrew Roots movement rejects Christ's grace, and they reinsert requirements of the law. It basically says what Jesus did on that cross was not enough. In turn, each follower of this heresy is in the process of working their way to heaven, an infinite climb which will be cut short at their death. Instead of heaven, they will find another sad end. If those same folks would simply read the word, take it at face value, and understand it in context, they would come to the letter of Galatians. They would put away their heretical works, and they would trust in the grace of Christ's finished work, boasting in his cross alone. There would be peace in their lives, harmony between them and God, 
and they would be able to bridge that infinite gap via his shed blood. Mostly, though, I was thinking about the cult of Mary. People pray to her. They worship her. They trust in her to be their mediator to God. What is so curious to me is that after about five years of sermons in Genesis and Exodus, we have had literally thousands and thousands of pictures of Christ. We have had pictures of the dispensations of time through which Christ works. We have had pictures of God's people in collective snapshots, such as in the rapture or in Israel or in the church, all of which center on Christ. In fact, in all of these 208 Genesis and Exodus sermons, plus the 13 Ruth sermons, and in various other sermons that we've done, there has not been one single picture of Mary. Not one. Even if we were to force her into a picture or two, as the RCC has done, it would still be far less than the pictures of the apostles or the redeemed collectively, which are only the result of Christ's work. Comparing zero to about 17 jillion pictures of Christ, it should be obvious to even the dullest of sorts that God really wants us to focus on Jesus. It is all, and I mean it is all about him. Don't get led astray into strange doctrines and don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Today's text verse is about the priests and saints of the Lord, but they are only priests and saints because of the Lord. It comes from Psalm 132, it's verse 9. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. The psalmist speaks of the priests being clothed with righteousness. This is pictured in today's verses and it continues on all during the time of the law. But there is more. Because of the work of Christ, we too are counted as a kingdom of priests and we too are clothed with righteousness. It is the truth which is to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have four thoughts for you today. The first is the high priestly robe. This is verses 31 through 35. Verse 31, you shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. Some of Aaron's garments have already been detailed, including the ephod and the breastplate. Now a robe is detailed, which will be worn under those implements, but over the fine woven tunic. It is known as a me'il. It was first introduced into the Bible in Exodus 28, verse 4, in the list of what was to be made. Now its details are given. The me'il is a type of tunic which would reach from the neck all the way down somewhere around the knees probably, but some believe it went even as far as to the feet. It was a completely seamless garment, as is inferred by Exodus 39, verse 22, which says he made the robe of the ephod of woven work, all of blue. The term woven work implies a seamless garment. However, Flavius Josephus explicitly documents this fact in his commentary on the priestly garments. He says that the coat did not consist of two parts, nor was it sewed upon the shoulder nor on the side, but was one long piece of woven work. It would have a hole for the head to go through, and it had no sleeves. Therefore, the top portion of it would be mostly covered by the ephod and the breastplate. However, the lower part was fully visible. The plain blue would be a beautiful contrast to the variegated ephod and the gleaming breastplate. This blue, as we have seen in other details of the tabernacle and priestly garments, signifies the law, especially in adherence to the law. The word translated as all, as in all of blue, is the adjective kalil. This is a new word which is introduced into scripture, and it comes from the word kalal, which means to complete or to make perfect. 
Thus, it means that this robe is entirely made of this color, only this color and nothing else. Verse 32, there shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. At the top and in the middle, logically where the neck is, there was to be an opening for Aaron's head to go through. Rather than a slit, it was to be round like a modern t-shirt. The word for opening is pay, meaning mouth. Verse 32, continuing, it shall have a woven binding all around its opening. Lips it shall have at the mouth around work of woven. The word translated as binding is safa. It means lips. Just as the robe was to have a mouth, so it would have lips around the mouth. The same word is translated as speech elsewhere in the Bible because lips are the place where speech issues from. The Hebrew is far more descriptive than how the English normally reads. The word for woven here is arag. It's a verb used for the first of 13 times, which means weaving. It is what a spider would do when forming a web or what a weaver would do on a loom. The reason for this woven work is next explained. Verse 32 continuing, like the opening in a coat of mail so that it does not tear. The word for coat of mail, tahara, is very rare. It's used just twice and both times it is speaking about this garment. It comes from the verb hara, which means to burn with anger. Thus, it is probably being used facetiously, just as a coat of mail would be used in fighting. The idea here is that this opening would be sewn onto the woven garment to give it additional strength to keep it from tearing. In other words, it is exactly what we have on our t-shirts today. If the lip wasn't sewn all the way around the mouth of the shirt, the fabric would simply and very quickly tear as we pulled our head through it. Verse 33, and upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet all around its hem. The hem is introduced here. It is the word shul, which comes from an unused root, meaning to hang down. Thus, it indicates the bottom edge. To fully grasp the meaning, it is translated as train in Isaiah 6, verse 1. Very famous passage here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train, the shul of his robe, filled the temple. Onto this hem, pomegranates were to be attached, which were to be sewn out of blue, purple, and scarlet. The pomegranate is also a new word in the Bible. It's the word remon. It will be used 32 times, and it is a very enigmatic symbol. The word remon is associated with the word rum, which means to be high or to be exalted. It also carries the connotation of mental maturity and the calling to remembrance of something. The modern Jewish notion of the pomegranate representing the law because it has 613 seeds, just as the law has 613 commandments, is a bit far-fetched. This is especially so because a pomegranate does not have 613 seeds. The numbers vary with each fruit that you open. However, in that they are attached to the blue garment of the high priest, it does point to the notion of calling the law to remembrance. As far as the colors which these pomegranates were to be sown, their meanings remain constant. We've seen this at least 20 times. The blue represents the law. Royalty is seen in the purple, which is a combination of blue and red. And war, blood, and judgment is signified by the red. The pomegranates were to completely circle the hem of the garment. Verse 33 continues, and bells of gold between them all around. Pa'amon, or bells, are now brought into the Bible. This particular word for bell is to be used only in connection with this high priestly garment. The word comes from pa'am, which we've seen elsewhere. It means times or occurrences. In the ringing of a bell, there is an occurrence which can be counted. 
one would think that because they are on his garment that they would be described using the adjective tahor or pure. However, that is lacking. But don't despair. They are in fact made with zahav tahor or gold pure. This is seen later in Exodus 39 verse 25 where it says, And they made the bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates on the hem of the robe all around between the pomegranates. Verse 34, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe all around. Jewish scholars of the past have claimed a certain number of pomegranates and bells were hung from the hem. However, the Bible is silent on this and therefore no symbolism is to be found in that regard. Rather, what is clear is that they were to alternate between a golden bell and a pomegranate all the way around the hem. Verse 35, and it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers. Verse 35 is puzzling, a very puzzling verse to a lot of scholars. But by looking at it one clause at a time, it clears up. The robe with the bells is to be worn whenever he ministers. The word for minister is sharat. It comes from a primitive root word, which means to attend to as a menial or a worshiper. In essence, it means to wait upon. Verse 35 continues, And its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out. The sounding forth of the bells was to be heard any time that Aaron was to enter the holy place before or in the face of the Lord, as that word actually means. As he entered and as he exited, his movements would be heard. The word translated here as sound is kol. It means voice. A voice is something that calls out in an understandable way. Thus, the voice of the bells was calling out as a reminder. But it is not a reminder to the Lord. He is fully aware of all things. He needed no reminders. Therefore, the voice of the bells was to be a reminder to Aaron of his responsibilities within the holy place. Verse 35 continues, that he may not die. Velo yamut, and no he die. The penalty for not treating the duties of the office with proper respect was death. The bells upon his garments were a reminder that he was to never treat his duties as an unholy thing. Almost all scholars, and I mean almost every one of them, ties this sounding of the bells to the people outside the holy place, informing them that the priest was inside attending to his duties and that they were to pray and worship while he was in there. And to support this, they read Luke 1, 9, and 10. Here's what they say. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God, the order of his division, this is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. But this is incorrect. These garments described those that are worn by the high priest alone, not the priest selected to offer incense before the Lord. Further, whether the people outside prayed or whether they didn't had no bearing on whether the high priest lived or died. Rather, he was the servant attending the Lord. The Lord is holy. Should a servant show disrespect to his king, he would be killed. How much more then should the high priest treat the Lord with absolute holiness? The bells were to call this to memory with each step that he took. The pomegranates were there as a testimony that he was to be mentally mature in the presence of the Lord. To fail in this regard would result in death. The lesson was learned by his two eldest sons when they failed in this regard. This is recorded in Leviticus chapter 10. Sobering words. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. 
So the fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. This verse concerning the bells is one of several such times that this precept about dying before the Lord is stated to Moses. And remember now, the Lord that we're looking at in the Old Testament is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talk about him sometimes in a rather flippant manner. We see Christians kind of handling their relationship with the Lord in a manner that isn't right. He's still the same Holy Lord to this day. We're brought into an especially close relationship with him because of what he did. But he is our Lord and he is holy. A pomegranate and a bell, a pomegranate and a bell, a delightful fruit to think about and a wondrous tinkling too. In wearing these on your garments, all will go well, so you shall call to mind the things which you are to do. Attend to your duties, but keep the Lord on your mind. Each step that you take, call him to remembrance. Trust him alone, leaving all else behind. And in this manner, have your duties in attendance. Walk in holiness all of your days, for your tasks are the most important ever known. And in your victory, a new path you shall blaze. And to those who follow you, that precious path will be shown. Our second thought is holiness to the Lord. It's verses 36 through 39. Verse 36, you shall also make a plate of pure gold. The next item to be made is this plate of pure gold. The plate is a new word, tzitz. It indicates a burnished plate, but it also means a flower, which is bright colored, and even a wing, which gleams in the air. Thus, this was probably a plate resembling a flower. The Greek translation of the Old Testament calls it a petalon. You can hear the word petal in there. It's the plural of the word leaf in Greek. Later, it will be called the holy crown. Therefore, it was probably somewhat like a crown of leaves or a crown of flowers. The gold for this plate is given the adjective tahor or pure. The gold was to be completely undefiled in any way. It is a reflection of the divinity of Christ. The idea is that this plate would be highly visible and reflect any light which touched it. Verse 36 continues, and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet. Like the memorial stones and the stones of the breastplate, this plate was to be engraved as a signet. The words were to be clear and visible. As this was on his head, it would be the point most seen by anyone observing him. Even more than the memorial stones or the stones of the breastplate, this would be the main focus of the high priestly attire. However, like a canvas, which is only a vessel for a painting, the gold was merely a vessel for conveying something else. In the case of this plate, it would be just two words, and the words were to be engraved consisting of just eight letters. Verse 36 continues, Holiness to the Lord, Kodesh Yehovah. Holiness to Jehovah. The number eight in the Bible is the superabundant number and the number of new beginnings. There was a rift between God and man, and now that rift is beginning to be healed by the work of the high priest. He would be the mediator between God and man. The Lord is holy, and the high priest was to be holy to the Lord. There was to be dignity in the office which would allow him to minister on behalf of the people redeemed by God. Verse 37, and you shall put on it a blue cord that it may be on the turban. Okay, before I go on, what does blue signify? The law. The law. I'm, you guys are paying attention. The plate was to be attached to the turban by a blue cord. Consider the symbolism of the metal and the color of the cord. One speaks of divinity and royalty. The other speaks of the law. 
Verse 37 continues, it shall be on the front of the turban. The plate was to be right at the front of the turban, right at the forehead of Aaron. This is seen explicitly in the next verse, verse 38. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead. After 2,500 years of human existence, the metzach or forehead is introduced into the Bible here and for a very good reason. The word comes from an unused root meaning to be clear and hence conspicuous. Therefore, the forehead is considered the prominent place of the man in the Bible. The forehead is the place of conscience and the place of identification. It can therefore be a place of a clear conscience or a seared conscience. When King Uzziah illegally burned incense before the Lord, usurping the duties reserved for the priests, it was his forehead which broke out in leprosy. When the Lord scolded Israel for having no shame, he said they had a harlot's forehead. In Ezekiel chapter 9, when the people who mourned over the abominations of the land were sealed for salvation, a mark, a tav, a cross was placed on their foreheads. The same is true with the sealed 144,000 of Revelation. It will be upon their foreheads. They will be those who realize that Christ is the Lord and their conscience will lead them to being sealed by the Lord. In contrast is the great whore who is recorded in Revelation 17. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. The conscience of this great whore is completely seared to the holiness of the Lord. The use of the forehead now for the very first time in the Bible here shows us that an awareness of both wrongdoing and what is right is to be maintained by the high priest. One cannot understand holiness without understanding depravity. Therefore, the high priest is to be aware at all times of the holiness of the Lord. He is further to reflect this holiness in all that he does. This is seen in the continuation of the verse. Verse 38 going on, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts. This verse right here shows us the infinite gap which exists between God and man. Aaron, as representative of God, was to bear the iniquity of the holy things of the people which they offered to the Lord. What this means is that even that which was offered according to the law and which was considered holy still bore iniquity before the pure holiness of the Lord. This truth is seen in the book of Haggai with these words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or food, will it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these things, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. The fact is that though in the land of the living, all people are spiritually dead before God having inherited Adam's original sin. Therefore, anything we touch is defiled and impure. The gold plate on Aaron's head was an indication of God's acceptance of his office of high priest to mediate between the people's tainted offerings and his perfect holiness. John Calvin notes the following. It sounds harsh and almost paradoxical to say that holy things themselves are unclean so as to need pardon, but it is to be held that there is absolutely nothing so pure, but that it contracts some stain from us. Nothing is more excellent than the worship of God, and yet the people could offer nothing, even when it was prescribed by law, without intervention of pardon, which they could obtain only through the priest. Aaron, 
as a picture of the coming Christ was to bear the iniquity of the people before the Lord. The place of conscience and the place of sealing and acceptance, meaning the forehead, was to be reflective of this truth. Kodesh Yehovah. Verse 38 continues, And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. At all times while ministering on behalf of the people, Aaron was to bear the plate and thus bear the iniquity of Israel. In so doing, they and their offerings would be accepted before or in the face of the Lord. Verse 39, you shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread. You shall make the turban of fine linen and you shall make the sash of woven work. The items to be made for Aaron's attire close out with these words. The tunic, the turban, and the sash, not mentioned in any form since verse 4, are now instructed to be made. No other details are given here as guidelines for Moses. The word for weave is Shabbats. This is the second and last use of the word in the Bible. It was used in verse 20 concerning the gold settings of the stones of the breastplate. Therefore, as it means set, it is believed to indicate here a checkered weaving. Both the tunic and the turban were made in this way, with fine linen. These would be then solid white. The tunic would be under all of the other garments, and it would have both the sleeves extending to the wrists, and it would reach all the way down to the ankles. The sash is said to be made of woven work, and it is explained in Exodus 39 to be made of fine woven linen with blue, purple, and scarlet thread made by a weaver. What is unusual about this sash is that it was probably not visible at all as it would be under the other garments, and yet the instructions are clear, and the weaving of chapter 39 is very specific. Holiness to the Lord, pure and undefiled by sin, performing his duties of mediation for us. Access to the Father has been granted again because of the work of our high priest, Jesus. Only he can take what is tainted by our sin and make it acceptable to God for each of us. Yes, God now accepts us once again because of the work of our high priest, Jesus. Holiness to the Lord because of the victory he did win. And now he has also brought that victory to us. Yes, we are granted full rights as sons, thanking God again because of the work of our high priest, Jesus. Our third thought today is consecrating Aaron and his sons. That's verses 40 through 43. Verse 40, for Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics and you shall make sashes for them. The tunics and the sashes for the sons of Aaron were to be white. There is nothing else noticeable about them. The instructions are simple and without any particular detail. The verb for making the tunics in this verse is asa instead of shabbats of the previous verse. Therefore, these were probably not patterned in any way. The garments of the sons were simple, unadorned except in pristine white, and yet they were distinct from all other people around them. Verse 40 continues, And you shall make hats for them. The word hat is migbaot. This is the first of only four times that it's going to be used, and only in reference to these caps for the sons of Aaron. It is from the same root as giba or hills, and gabia, or cups. Hence, they are caps which fit the head. Verse 40 continues, For glory and beauty. The same term was used to describe Aaron's garments way back earlier. It's again used here for glory and for beauty. It may seem remarkable that plain white garments would be so described, but white symbolizes righteousness. At times in the Bible, Christ's garments or those of the angels are represented as being white. The glory and the beauty then is reflective of that which is of God, his righteousness. Verse 41, so you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. 
It is Moses who is instructed to not only have the garments made, but also to be the one to present and invest Aaron and his sons with them. It is really an amazing thing to consider. The prophet of God, the one who speaks the word, is the one to bring about the initiation of the priesthood. Thus, it logically follows that the priesthood is subordinated to the office of prophet. The pattern follows through with Christ, who was from the beginning the word of God, but who became God's high priest according to the word of God, as is indicated in Hebrews 5, verse 5. Verse 41 continues, You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister to me as priests. The word for anoint, mashach, has only been used once so far in the entire Bible. It referred to Jacob's action of anointing the stone which he had set up as a pillar after sleeping on it the night before. Now it will become a common word in the history of the law. It is the same word used for anointing prophets, priests, and kings. It is the basis of the word Mashiach, or Messiah. The words for consecrate them are literally fill their hand. Moses would fill their hand with a part of the sacrifice and then present them to the Lord, thus consecrating them. And the word for sanctify means to make them holy. In their ordination, they would be set apart as priests, acceptable ministers to the Lord. Verse 42, and you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. The miknas or undergarments are introduced here and will only be noted five times, always in regards to the priests. The final time will be in the book of Ezekiel. It comes from a word which gives the sense of hiding. They are especially noted for the covering of their besa erva, or flesh of nakedness. The linen they are made of is a new word, too. It's bad. It's probably from the word badad, or shoots. Thus, one gets the idea of divided fibers that are woven together. The nakedness of the priests was to be covered in order to reflect purity and holiness instead of indecency. These would reach from the waist to a little above the knees. Verse 43, they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place that they do not incur iniquity and die. One must ask why this covering is required. Nakedness was created by God and there was no hint of indecency in the Garden of Eden, was there? However, after the fall, the man and his wife realized that they were naked. Thus, the nakedness of man is connected to the knowledge of sin. Further, sin is an inherited disease. It is one which affects all people and which is transferred from the Father through a union with a woman. Thus, the life of humans is one fraught from the very beginning with sin, as well as both moral and physical decay. Thus, covering their bodies was symbolic of being covered in righteousness and in life. Should they expose their private parts before the Lord, it would be an affront because they had exposed the source of their transfer of the first sin committed so long before by their first father and which continued to be transmitted through them. It is important to note that both the King James Version and the New King James Version get demerits in their translation of this verse. It is not the tabernacle of meeting, but the tent of meeting. The word is ohel, and it means tent. This is why it first says the tent of meeting and then near the altar. Although not yet described, this is speaking of the altar of incense, which will stand in the holy place. And verse 43 finishes with these words. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. Anytime from the life of Aaron and through all of his descendants during the time that the law remained in effect, they were to be obedient to this precept. 
They were to wear these undergarments at all times when ministering to the Lord in their prescribed manner. Our final thought today is pictures of Christ and his work. With the verses completed for the passage and the chapter, let's take a few minutes and look at how they point to Christ and his work. First, the robe which is to be worn by Aaron is all of blue. As blue signifies the law, it is intended to show us, like the picture of the Ark of the Covenant, that Christ Jesus is the embodiment of the law. As I noted, the word for all, as in all of blue, is the word kalil. This comes from kalal, meaning to complete or to make perfect. It is Christ who perfectly fulfilled the law, completing it on our behalf. He is literally robed in the completion of the law. Also, the robe was seamless and points to John's words about Jesus on the cross. Here's what it says in John 19, 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. Shortly after this occurred, John records Jesus' dying words. It is finished. The high priest of Israel's robe was merely a picture of Christ embodying the law, fulfilling it and finishing it for us. However, before he died, something else is recorded about Christ's tunic. Despite dividing his other garments, the value of his tunic led them to say this, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. In Matthew 26, 65, the high priest of Israel tore his clothes during Jesus' trial. This was in direct violation of the law of Moses. In Leviticus 21, it says this, He who is the high priest among his brethren, or whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes. What we see in this was an ending of the old order of things. The law of Moses was ended in Christ's work, and the new covenant was established in his blood. The note of keeping the high priest's robe from tearing was given as an anticipatory picture of the true high priest's garments not being torn. But the recording of the high priest tearing his garment signifies the ending of that priesthood. That Christ's garment wasn't torn, and yet his body was, signifies the introduction of the new covenant. Next, the word to describe the hem around the neck was that very rare word that I told you about, tahara, which comes from a root which means to burn with anger. In this, the symbolism seems obvious. The anger of the Lord at the sin of man is what was on display there at the cross. The penalty for that sin was the tearing of Christ's body, the true robe of humanity. The pomegranates, or rimon, as I said, are associated with rum, which means to be high or exalted. They also carry the connotation of mental maturity and calling to remembrance. The wearing of the pomegranates then only looked forward to the maturity of the new covenant established through Christ's work. This is seen in the use of the same word, rum, in Isaiah 52, where it says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted, rum, and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what they had not been told, them they shall see, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. Christ was exalted through his death in fulfillment of the law. In Christ, we too now have that maturity. Paul explains it in the book of Galatians, where he calls the law a tutor to lead us to Christ. That's why we use the term children of Israel. Only when speaking of the actual sons of Israel are they to be called the sons of Israel. Other than that, the collective group is the children of Israel because they are not yet mature. 
Here's what Paul says in Galatians 3. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The maturity is realized. You wonder why God puts a word in the Bible that's used one time or two times and it's very specific where it comes from? It's because he's trying to show us his son in every one of these ancient pictures, every one of them. The colors of the pomegranates, blue, purple, and red, all point to the completed work of Christ. Just as each time these colors have been mentioned, he kept the law. He was exalted to his rightful kingly status and his blood is the judgment on our sin or against the sin of unbelievers. The pa'amon or bells are specifically given to represent calling to remembrance the fulfillment of the law by Christ. The word comes from, as I said, pa'am, which means times or occurrences. Each precept of the law was specifically and perfectly fulfilled by Christ. Each tinkle of the bell is that call to remembrance. That they were of gold indicates his deity, which reminded his humanity of each task that he was to fulfill for his redeemed. That both the pomegranates and the bells are attached specifically to the blue robe of the high priest signifies calling to remembrance his work in completion of the law and acknowledgement concerning his exalted status because of it. That they encircled the entire hem shows the unbroken nature of his work in its fulfillment. Every word and every detail fills us with pictures of the work of Christ on our behalf. The specific note about Aaron wearing this robe at all times when he went in and out before the Lord and that the sound was to be heard lest he die continues the picture of the constant reminder by God to Christ of his need to not die because of the law but in fulfillment of the law. If he failed in any precept, he would die before the Lord. Thanks be to God, he prevailed. The engraved plate, as I noted, is later called a crown. It pictures the royal kingship of Christ. Unlike Israel, which had offices of king and priest, which were not to be intermingled, Christ is the fulfillment of both of those offices. This is explicitly stated by the prophet Zechariah concerning the coming Messiah in chapter 6 of his book. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. He shall sit and rule on his throne. He shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. The special word used to describe this plate, seats, speaks of Christ's human and divine natures. The pure gold represents his pure divinity, but that it is a flower speaks of his humanity. This is seen where the same word speaks of the fading glory of man. Here's it from Isaiah 40, verse 6. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower that seats of the field. Unlike fallen man, though, Christ is the unfading flower who stepped out of heaven to restore us to that same beautiful state. The engraving of holiness to the Lord on this plate signifies the perfection of Christ. He is the true mediator for God's people. It is he who makes our offerings acceptable to God once again, and it is he who restores us fully and completely to our heavenly Father. That there were two words on the engraving signifies his divine human nature. 
Kodesh Yehovah. The eight letters signify the new beginnings which are found in Christ Jesus. In fact, the name Jesus in Greek, Isus, is numerically equal to 888. Thus, he is the ultimate example of the new beginning for fallen man. The blue cord which tied the plate to the turban signifies the law as fulfilled, which ties the divine Lord to his intercessory role as our high priest. It is he who is the bridge between the infinite father and finite us. The specific naming of the placement of the plate on the forehead of the high priest is to show both the place of conscience and of identification. The duality is seen in that he is first conscious of those he ministers for, meaning us, and he is also conscious of his rightful place before his father. Secondly, it reveals his priestly identity presented before us and which comes from his father. It is he who bore our iniquities at the cross, and it is he who still makes our sin-filled lives acceptable as holiness to the Lord. Only through him can we be considered acceptable to God. And this is actually realized on the very last page of the Bible where these marvelous words include the very last use of the word forehead in the Bible. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. The linen tunic and the linen turban reflect Christ's absolute righteousness. It is what crowns him and what defines his very character. This is why it is on Aaron's head as a turban, and it is what is closest to his body concerning garments. They picture the pure and unsullied life and authority of Christ. The unusual word to describe that linen, Shabbat, signifies that it is checkered. Remember, it meant checkered. It's checkered into his very nature. Unlike any other human, only he possesses this complete righteousness in his nature. It is set, if you will, into his very being. As it comes out on both arms and under his robe, it signifies that righteousness is an all-evident trait of his. Thus, it is this characteristic of him that Pilate proclaimed with these words, I find no fault in this man. The woven sash, which was used for the tunic, but hidden under the other garments, is reflective of his divine majesty. This is seen in the 93rd Psalm. It says there, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. The chapter closes with a traditional set of verses which lead us into the next chapter and the details for the consecration of Aaron and his sons. Without going into complete detail, the white tunics, sashes, and hats for Aaron's sons merely picture our righteousness, endowed to us because of the work of Christ. It is he who has brought many sons to glory through his work. The hats, as I noted, are a special word used only for these hats by these priests. The word is migbaot, and it is from the same root as giba or hills, and gabia, or cups. These two words are tied directly to the Aramaic word Gabatha, the place where Christ was judged before Pontius Pilate. The symbolism is actually beautiful. The priests of the Lord Jesus are granted that status as a helmet of salvation upon their heads because of the judgment rendered on Christ at Gabatha. The statement that the garments of the sons of Aaron were for glory and for beauty was the same statement made for the garments of Aaron. In other words, because of the work of Christ, his priests now bear the same glory and beauty as he before the Father. Think of it. 
Imagine what we have been granted because of what he did for us. Yes, we are considered righteous children of God because of Christ. But even more, it is we who are considered a kingdom of priests to God because of him. This is what is pictured in the white garments of the sons of the high priest. As it was Moses who clothed Aaron and his sons, so it is the word of God who clothed Christ as a high priest and who now clothes us through faith in his word. In this, we are anointed. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13. We are consecrated. The offering of our hands is acceptable to the Lord. That's Hebrews 10.20. And we are sanctified. We are made holy to serve as ministers to God, as priests. That's Revelation 22, verse 3. Lastly today, in the final two verses are a picture of our acceptable nature before God because of Christ. The linen undergarments are a picture of our spiritual nakedness being covered by Christ's righteousness. As nakedness was not a consideration in the Garden of Eden, it is not physical nakedness which is being pictured. Rather, it is the spiritual nakedness of fallen humanity. Though it is difficult for us to consider the record of the crosses that Christ's garments were taken from him and they were parted up with the exception of the tunic for which lots were cast. This means that he hung exposed in his flesh to the world. And yet, he was considered, just as Adam was, spiritually covered. His death, shameful by the standards of the world, grants us the same spiritual covering. Through him, we can never again incur the iniquity of sin and die. We are freed from sin's power because of the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In all today, we have seen, remember at the beginning of the sermons, I asked after reading it, have you seen Christ in there? Do you see him now? Okay, we've seen dozens and dozens of pictures of Christ and his work. As I said at the beginning, it is up to us where we will fix our eyes and our devotions. If you want to fix them on the law, you will be judged by that law. If you want to fix them on Mary, you will die apart from Christ. Rather, call on Jesus and be reconciled to God and have peace in yourselves because of the finished work of another, because of the work of Jesus Christ. Our closing verse today comes from Revelation 22. It's the fourth verse. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. His servants shall serve him. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. I don't usually repeat a verse from the text of the sermon down at the closing verse, but that's important enough for us to remember. We are holy and acceptable to God because of Christ. And it's all pictured in the verses we looked at today. How astonishing. If you've never called on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, make it today. God is trying to wake you up to this. Get away from Mary. Get away from deeds of the law and the Judaizers and the Messianic Roots movement that keep saying we need to observe a Sabbath. We need to not eat pork. We need to give this up and we need to do that. Legalism is the same poison in opposite from liberalism. Oh, we don't need to be obedient to Christ. We don't need to do this. And one way or another, you're departing from the truth. There is a middle road and it follows the cross of Christ in doing what he would ask from us from a New Testament concept. So don't try to reinsert deeds of a law that was nailed to the cross in Christ. Stick to the New Testament. Stick to the writings of Paul, which is doctrine for our church age. But before you can do that, you have to be reconciled to God. So do it today. Next week, we have uh, Exodus 29, 1 through 14. Looking into these verses will be more than fun. It's entitled The Consecration of Aaron and His Sons, Part 1. That'll be our 79th Exodus sermon. And yes, there are three parts to that. It's going to be a long haul, guys. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. 
So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I've got a poem for you based on these uh, verses. And as I said, oh, maybe last year sometime, my button came off. I said about a year ago, it's fun to do these poems because I read you the uh, passage at the beginning of each sermon. And then I read you the entire passage again throughout the sermon. And then I read you it a third time in a poetic form. So you're getting this, this passage three times each time you come to this church. I'm going to get the Bible into you one way or another. You shall make the robe of, this is called clothed in majesty and righteousness. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. Follow all of the directions as I instruct you. There shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall have at its opening all around, like the opening in a coat of mail, so that it does not tear. We don't want that tearing sound. And upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet all around its hem, and bells of gold all around between them. A gold bell and a pomegranate, a gold bell and a pomegranate, so it shall be upon the hem of the robe all around. These instructions you shall follow exactingly. And it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers, and its sound when he goes into the holy place will be heard before the Lord, and when he comes out, that he may not die. Do according to my word. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, attend to my word, like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on a blue cord, you see, that it may be on the turban. On the front of the turban it shall be. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead, as I tell, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts given to me. And it shall always be on his forehead, according to my word, that they may be acceptable before the Lord. You shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread. You shall make the turban of fine linen, and you shall make the sash of woven work, as I have said. For Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, follow in this duty, and you shall make hats for them, for glory and beauty. So you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, so shall it be. And you shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may, as priests, minister to me. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs as a part of their regular dress. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting. These instructions apply. Or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, that they do not incur iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him, all of them. Once again, O God, we have seen Christ revealed. Each word points to him and what he has done in the words which were long ago concealed. New insights keep coming of your precious son. Thank you for all the, the wonder of it all and grant us the wisdom that on the name of Jesus we will call. And then through him we shall glorify you for eternal days. And to you, O oh God, we shall sing our marvelous words of praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, it is really wonderful to look at these these hard-to-read passages because we don't understand them, and then to hear what a single word might mean, where it comes from, and what the, the root of that word means. And all of a sudden, a light comes on, or a bell tinkles, and it says, oh, I'm trying to wake you up to my son, Jesus. And we do another word, and another, and another, and another, and they keep showing us Jesus. They keep showing us your love for us, that you would step out of eternity, unite with human flesh, and you would take care of all of our baggage and take everything away from us that we deserve and give us nothing but good. What kind of a God you are. How wonderful you are that you would do these things. We love you and we praise you. Lord, we pray for Darla with her hip 
that has got to be replaced soon and uh, that that would be a success. And we also pray for Darlene and Craig and um, Arlena and uh, for safe travelings for uh, Nicole as she's up north and for everybody else that isn't here for whatever reason. And we hope that they're having a good day and at least thinking about you and honoring you as they go about their business. Lord, we thank you for the fathers on Father's Day that uh, have raised us and have done their best with us, even though uh, both they are fallible and we are fallible. And so there are often times where there is not peace between us and our fathers. But we thank you for them, and we know that you are the perfect father that will never let us down, and that everything that you do is without any fault at all, and that we have perfect reconciliation to you through what you did. Thank you for that. Thank you for all you've done for us. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. We glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. We get the directions uh, for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. They come from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and they're written by the hand of Paul, where he says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that on the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he would have said these words as he took it. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, a blessing as well. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Now, does anybody know, did Jay and Joan travel, or is it no. here in Sarasota? No, well, they, uh, they're attending a wedding. Yeah. I know, but it's here in Sarasota? No, or? it's in uh, St. Peter's. Oh, okay, well, it's not too far, but we'll keep them in prayer anyway. Yeah. Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray for Jay and Joan for a safe uh, trip up to St. Pete and back, and... Uh, also, it's good to see that Cindy's eye is open more and more each week. We thank you for that. We thank you for all the good blessings you blessed us with. You are so very good to us. Your word is so wonderful. And Lord, you know, my, my mind has been stuck on one word throughout this entire process of this sermon is tahara, which comes from the word hara, which means to burn with anger. And how your anger burns at the sins of mankind. And yet you poured that out on your own son for our sake. I just... I can't imagine it. I can't imagine that. And yet you did it to redeem us back to you so that we could live in your presence for all eternity. What a God. I love you, Lord Jesus. You're so good to us. We thank you. We thank you for all you've done for us because you were marvelous beyond, beyond description. No words could ever describe how marvelous you are. We praise you and we hail you and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.